Thank you for joining us today at Our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in seven different locations. We hope that today's message encourages and empowers you on your spiritual journey and helps you grow deeper in your relationship with God. To learn more about Our Savior's Church and how you can get involved, you can visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Good morning, church. How's everybody? I saw a good number of faces that I hadn't seen for a few weeks. There's a flu going around, if you don't know that. Upper respiratory. Maybe if you know somebody in your family, or maybe you've been, been affected by this. There's some empty seats here this morning from those that I know that are out. Can we start today by doing this? Let's pray for those who are, who are struggling with that sickness, um, who, who are out. Father, thank you that we get to come to you and ask for healing. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, his broken body, that healing is available to us. I pray for everybody who is struggling with this sickness right now, Father, that there would be a healing hand come upon them right now, Father, that what is thick in their lungs would begin to break up and dissipate. Father, thank you for keeping us safe. Thank you for guarding. I pray that when they come back, they would feel as if they never missed. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. We've been in a series called The Gift. It's a Christmas series, and I've absolutely loved collaborating with our other pastors on this series, um, looking at the Gospel of Matthew and the perspective of Jesus' birth. Dr. Scott kicked us off. You remember that a couple weeks ago? He really helped us see the dysfunction in our family tree and how Jesus interrupts those generational cycles of sin and struggle. I remember this phrase very clearly from two weeks ago, because of Jesus, the sin in my family tree can end with me. How many of you are grateful for that? Absolutely. Last week in week two, we talked about not being fooled by the wrapping. Not being fooled by the wrapping. The gift of our Savior was actually wrapped in scandal. And just like difficult seasons and painful experiences can ultimately turn out for our good and our betterment. How many of you are grateful that we can trust the gifts that come from the hands of our Father, even if we don't like the struggle along the way. We're in week three this week, and I think we're going to continue the story uh, and the gift of Jesus' birth as it's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. But before we jump in and read the story, I need to introduce you to a couple of new characters. Y'all good with that? Can I introduce you to a couple of new characters? We're going to be reading about a few wise men in this story today, and your version may say magi. Here's what I want you to think about. These are well-educated historian astrologers. That's the best way I can describe it. This is a small group of men uh, who studied not only their culture, but other cultures and the histories, but they also studied the stars, and they spent a lot of time looking at the stars and mapping them and charting them out, and here's what happens in our story. They recognize a brand new star that they had never seen before, they realize where it is, and then they start to connect the dots historically between things that they knew about the Jewish culture, this particular area where they are, and they realize there's a prophetic history, and the promised Messiah King was ready to be born. So that's one group of people I need to introduce you to. And then there's another. His name is King Herod. And here's what you need to know about King Herod. He's not really a king by royal lineage. He's actually a politician with political aspirations. He's not a great Guy, when, when Rome would come and conquer these areas, they would often appoint their own leaders to govern them. And King Herod was one of those guys who allegiances were really more to Rome than they were to the nation of Israel. And Herod was actually the first of a few Herods, the first of a few fake kings who would rule in Israel following the Roman captivity and, or, or the conquering. And uh, he, let's just say this, he wasn't a good guy. 
He was not a good guy. This guy actually killed his own wife and two brothers when he suspected them of treason. And there's a lot of things we get to see uh, as we get to learn about him. Not, he was married nine different times. Not because he loved those women, but because he was after his own lustful ambitions and political ties. You ready? Those are the characters I need to introduce you today. Let's jump into scripture, and then I'm going to show you how all of this ties in to the gift that we've been given at Christmas time. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 16. It's a little extended passage, but we're going to break it up. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, that's the fake king, remember, imposed by Rome, Behold, wise men, those educated historian astrologers from the east, they came to Jerusalem saying this, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. How many of you know somebody that their drama automatically becomes everybody else's drama? Right? Don't raise your hand. I don't need you to point to anybody. They may be sitting right next to you. That's a great place for them to be is in church today. But there are those people that when it's not going well with them, it can't go well with anybody else. King Herod was one of those, those guys. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes from the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Pause for just a second. Three times in this story, we are told by Matthew, the author, that some of these things we're learning about Jesus were actually told and foretold by prophets hundreds of years ago. This is the first of those things that were foretold. This is actually by the prophet Micah. Here's what it says. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, look at this, that I too may come and worship him. Do you really think that's what King Herod was after? What he was really trying to do? I don't know. We're going to see it wasn't quite his motive. After listening to the king, verse 9, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This time it's Hosea, where he says, Out of Egypt. I called my son. That's actually going to be the topic of next week's message. Out of Egypt, he calls his son. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent, and look at this, he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all of that region who were two years or old or, or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. 
Verse 17 and 18 actually go on to tell us that the massacre that occurred here was foretold by Jeremiah a couple hundred years ago. So let me summarize the story for you, and we'll jump into the text today. Jesus, the long-predicted, long-awaited Messiah King, soon-to-be-born Savior, is actually born miraculously into the world. We've been singing at Christmas time this song, Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her But there's one king who does not like that this is happening. The legitimate king is born in a manger. The fake king is very aggravated and insecure. He's about to lose his throne. And if the real king is allowed to grow up and rule, he thinks, then what's going to happen to me? So here's what Herod does. He takes a play from his old playbook. If I can't beat him, I'm going to kill him. But he doesn't know where he is. So he actually goes out, kills all the baby boys, two years and younger. I'm grateful that the angel of the Lord met with Joseph and told him ahead of time to flee. Joseph takes his wife and the child. They get out of the region and flee into safety. A few years back, the Lafayette Daily Advertiser, you may remember this, it actually reported a tragic robbery that had occurred. Now listen, the good Cajun people of southern Louisiana were shocked and baffled, had no idea that this type of robbery was even possible in Acadiana, but it did. The Penfold family had erected a life-sized nativity scene in their front yard to celebrate Christmas, only to discover a few days later someone had stolen baby Jesus. Could you imagine going to your front yard, looking at the nativity scene, and there is an empty manger. Somebody had had vandalized and stolen baby Jesus. Somebody robbed the joy of Christmas from the safety of his manger in the front yard. There was another Lafayette resident that was so moved by the tragedy that they pitched in and bought and replaced the stolen figurine, only to have it stolen again just a few nights later. You can go look this up. This actually happened. I got to thinking about that story, this story that we read, and King Herod's attempt to rob the throne. And I got to thinking, how do we handle the things and the people that try to rob our joy this Christmas season? How do do we handle those? Robbed of the joy of presenting Jesus to the world, Joseph and his family were forced to flee into safety. Here's our question for today and where I want you to be thinking about. What sort of things can creep into our lives Robbing our joy and keeping us from presenting the love of Jesus to others this holiday season. That's what we're going to talk about, and we're going to jump in here. How many of you know there's a very real thief moving about on this earth? John 10.10 tells us about it. It says, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Now listen, there are plenty of these thieves that can rob our joy and prevent us from bringing the love of Jesus to others and to our community. But I'm just going to talk about a few of them today. These are three thieves that can rob our joy. Three thieves that can rob our joy today. Y'all ready to dig into the first one? Ready or not, here it comes. Number one, the thief of comparison. The thief of comparison. Some of you are already starting to nod your heads. You know where I'm going with this. President Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, said this, comparison is the thief of joy. It was obviously an issue well over 100 years ago when he said that. How many of you know it's a lot more of an issue today with the onset of the internet and social media and you getting to see what's going on in everybody else's life? No wonder depression is at an all-time high. 
And you know me, I've spoken at length about my disdain for social media. I never miss an opportunity to blast it, talk about social bleedia or whatever you want to say, all of those things. But listen, it's had such an effect on our emotional well-being. It's a vicious, vicious cycle. You do know that social media will cause you to view your everyday life right along somebody else's highlight reel. Nobody posts the, the crazy things that happen. They only post the great things that were happened. You, you've, we finished you know, this, this entree, and it looks nice and great, so you take a picture. How come nobody's showing me the five dirty pans and the dirty kitchen sink and all those things that happen? No, no. Just, yeah, we didn't even see the burnt pan that you messed up before you put it on the plate. You just showed everybody else how great it was. And listen, it wasn't even that good. It didn't even taste that good, but you wanted other people to see that. So you took a picture and you put it on there and I'm scrolling and I see that and I realize, man, that looks good, but I can't help but wonder what's happening on the other side of this. Early on, Kayla and I were married young in our 20s. And I remember Kayla scrolling through one evening and she asked this question. She says, how is everybody able to take all of these vacations? How is everybody our age able to afford all these trips, all of these vacations? And, and initially, I just brushed it off. I'm like, yeah, you know, that's, that's them, whatever, you know. But then I started to doubt my career choices, thinking, man, maybe, you know, I'd pick something wrong. If I we made more money, maybe I'm just, maybe there's something not wrong. And it wasn't long before I started to resent all of those things that I saw other people do. It'll, it'll mess with your head, won't it? No, I started saying, well, God, it must be nice. I bet they have mountains of credit card debt. That's what I think is happening. I think they're just putting on credit card debt. And y'all do know the grass is, is greener on the other side of the fence, right? Because that's where the cows poop. That's, that's, where, that's where the cows poop. That's why the grass is greener. Be careful. You go trodden through there. You might get something on your shoes that you don't want. Here's what I want you to know. Comparison is never healthy. Comparison is never healthy. If you find yourself and your situation is less than somebody else's, what happens? You feel condemned. You feel condemned. If you find your situation to be similar to somebody else's, what happens? You get competitive. You get competitive. But on the rare occasion you find yourself, your situation to be better than other people, what happens? You get conceited and prideful. There really is no good way out when we're talking about comparison. Y'all with me so far? It'll come in. It will rob your joy of this Christmas season. It'll prevent you from showing others who Jesus is. Let's look at scripture. Paul had something to say about this in his letter to the Corinthians, the second letter. He says this. I want you to think about your social media feed. He says, we do not dare to classify or to compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not what? They are not wise. In Romans, we read this, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you, we have different gifts and according to the grace given to each of us. When I'm using what God has given me for his glory, other people get to see Jesus inside of me. When you're using what God has given you 
in his glory, other people see Jesus inside of you. If you think that what you have isn't good enough compared to what I have and you don't use it, other people don't get to see that Jesus that's at work inside of you. They miss out on your comparison. I, I read this a while back. Seven billion people on the planet. You ever thought about that? Seven billion people. When I read scripture, it tells me that every single one of those is made in God's image. Every single one of those. You know what that tells me? That the more of you I get to meet, the more of him I get to know. And if you're comparing yourself and not using those gifts and those things that God has given you, this world is missing out on a facet of Jesus that is absolutely important to them. Do you see that? Comparison can come and it can rob your joy. And I'll be honest with you. I had to get off of social media in order to protect my heart and my mind against comparison. And I'll just throw this out there. You might need to also. Number two, number two, the thief of complaining. How many of you wish your teenager were here in service right here with them today? The thief of complaining. Philippians 2.14 says this, do everything without complaining and arguing. How many of you know complaining is deceptive? The Bible tells us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But did you know that's a two-way street? What you keep speaking will eventually become a heart issue. What you keep speaking out of your mouth will eventually become a heart issue. It's natural to be discontent with things that are going on. You do know that nothing this side of heaven is going to be perfect and free from discomfort. That's because of sin, not because of your situation. My kids will often tell me, but dad... That's not fair. How many kids have heard, you've heard that before from your children? It's not fair. I tell them, you're right. That's, that's not fair. Life is not fair. But it's not fair to everyone, and that's what makes it fair. Life isn't fair to everybody, so y'all just get over it. Everybody's having to walk through this. It is not fair. There's no sense in complaining about it. There's been a great deal of study gone into the neuroscience that happens in our brains when we have negative thoughts. I want to share a couple things with you. It's pretty fascinating. Do you know that when you have a negative thought, you actually trigger an electrical signal inside your brain? There's a synapse that's there that travels information across your brain and connects thoughts together. And your brain is hardwired to do things more quickly the next time you do it. First time you do something, you got to think long and hard about it. But as you continue to do it more and more and more, it gets easier and easier. Here's what your brain's doing. It's moving those synapses closer and closer and closer together. Every time you think some way, it gets closer and closer. It can travel quicker next time. You keep that habit up, and you've paved the way for a consistent pattern of negative thinking in your life. It becomes quicker and easier to think negatively in the future. And here's what happens. When a new situation arises, the thought that wins is the one that has the less distance to travel. You don't think about it, but that's what happens. No, no, Pastor Don, I'm just being honest. That's all I'm doing. I'm just being honest. There's just some things that are going on. I'm just pointing out the fact that I don't like that. I get it. I'm just doing No, 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 no. In reality, what you're doing is you're accusing God of not being good. That's what's really happening. You're, you're saying God doesn't know what's best. God doesn't have a plan or a purpose for my life. And every time you speak that way, you're teaching your brain to start to do that kind of thinking more quickly. How many of you know somebody, the first thing out of their mouth is going to be a complaint? Can I tell you, it didn't start that way. 
There was one moment where they said it, something fired. And they said it again, and something else fired. And now they can't help it. The moment something happens in their life, it's negative thinking. Complaining is actually so common in this world. When you don't complain, that's when people take notice. When you don't complain, that's when people take notice. That verse we read earlier from Philippians, here's the back half of it. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God. Look at this. Shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Like Herod, like the thief that stole the baby Jesus, complaining will rob you of your joy and prevent you from presenting Jesus to a world that doesn't know what it's like to see somebody go through a hard time and not complain about it, but trust that God is good, his word is still true, and if it's not done, if it's not good, then it's not done. He's still working. He has a plan, and his plan is better than mine. Are you all with me today? It's going to get you in trouble. Comparison will get you in trouble. The thief of complaining will rob you of your joy. Here's the third one. Tuck your toes up underneath your feet, underneath the pew just a little bit. I'm about to step on them. The thief of unforgiveness. The thief of unforgiveness. In that story that I shared with you earlier about the baby Jesus that they kept stealing from the nativity scene, do you know how they finally resolved the situation? Three times. Three times that baby was stolen. After they replaced him that time, you know what they ended up doing? They ended up chaining the baby to the manger. They said, I'll stop this from happening. They chained baby Jesus to the manger to keep him in the nativity scene. And listen, you laugh, but when you've consistently had your joy stolen, you try to do the same thing. Only you go and you grab a chain. You want so badly for that thing, that experience, that hurt, that thing never to happen to you again. You grab this chain, but instead of wrapping up that person so that they can never hurt you again, do you know what you end up doing? You end up wrapping up yourself. You wrapped yourself up in this chain. They can't hurt you again. And now all of a sudden, you've unknowingly wrapped up yourself. You may think, well, Pastor Don, you're talking to the wrong crowd. This is the church crowd. The number of God-loving people that are walking around in chains of unforgiveness is staggering. Can you imagine chains wrapped around? Maybe that's why you can't lift your hands in worship. Maybe that's why you can't fully enter in to his presence. You're wrapped in a chain and you think, I'm just going to shove that down in the back and lock that away and keep that and nobody's ever going to do that to me again and you don't realize. Listen, I get it. Trust me, I get it. What was done to you is wrong. And you're absolutely right to never want anything like that to ever happen to you again. But listen to me, you're killing yourself. You're killing yourself. Do you know what unforgiveness is like? Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. You don't realize the whole time, it's, it's all you think about. It's wrapped up. You can't break free from that. Scripture says a lot about forgiveness, not just God's forgiveness of our sins, but our forgiveness of those who have sinned against us. But can I tell you one thing Scripture does not say? It doesn't say that forgiveness is optional. It doesn't say that forgiveness is optional. Look at this, Colossians 3, verse 13. It says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, 
the Lord forgave you. So you what? You must. Not you should think about it. Not when you get around to it. Not it'll go well. No, listen. You must forgive others. Matthew chapter 6. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. That's some heavy hitting in Scripture. That's heavy hitting. And listen, as difficult as this topic is to discuss, I would not be the pastor to you that I want to be if I weren't willing to dig in and wade into this area because I see too many Christians struggling with the weight of the chains that they bound themselves in because they've been unwilling to see how unforgiveness is robbing them of their joy this season. And not only is it robbing you of your joy, it's actually preventing you from being able to present Jesus into this world. I was born with a different last name than the one that you guys know. And uh, the man I call my dad um, actually adopted me when I was 16 years old. And uh, my biological father wasn't just not in the picture. Uh, he was incarcerated for pretty much my entire life. Um, two consecutive 75-year sentences in the Texas Huntsville State Penitentiary. And uh, for most of my childhood, I grew up in the home of a single mama who did her best by God's grace, but at the same time was struggling with the hurt and the abuse that, has been, that he had done in her life when she was abused by him. And, you know, it does something to a young boy when you grow up in a household that not only you don't get to see the man you're supposed to grow up to be like, but the mama you do see has nothing good to say about him. It just it messes with you a little bit. And, uh, you know, the good news is I grew up and God put into my life early on a man that taught me some things that my biological father never did. And he became a dad to me. And to this day, I celebrate him on Father's Day, not my biological father. I carry his name and I do so proudly. Fast forward, I was newly married. I was actually on staff here at the church here at OSC. And if you had asked me if I had forgiven my biological father, do you know what I would have said? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I forgive him. I forgive him, sure. I would have said yes. And the truth is God really had done a work in my life. But I recall very clearly the day I was actually listening to Pastor Andy Stanley preach about forgiveness. And he said this. He said, Forgiveness doesn't mean what you did is okay. He said, forgiveness doesn't mean that I've forgotten. He said, forgiveness doesn't mean that I'm going to let you back in. But he said this, I'll never forget it. Forgiveness just simply means you don't owe me anything. And that moment when I heard him say it, here's the truth, it all came back. It all flooded back into my mind and in, in my heart at all. I couldn't, I couldn't say it. I couldn't say it. I could not say, you don't owe me anything. Because you know what? He did owe me. He did owe me. He owed me sitting on the sidelines at all of my athletic events. 
when I turn around and look and nobody was there. He owed me teaching me how to shave so I wouldn't cut up my face trying to figure it out on my own. He owed me teaching me how to drive. He owed me how to deal with bullies. He owed me. He owed me the example of how one man should love another woman faithfully for the rest of his life. He owed me. And I realized in that moment that as long as he owed me, I hadn't forgiven him. I was chained. I was chained. Those words echoed. You don't owe me anything. I realized this. You cannot cling to God and cling to unforgiveness at the same time. You can't. You get one or you get the other. You can't be wrapped up in a chain and try to raise your hands. It doesn't work that way. You got to be free to fully enter in. I couldn't just pick up the phone. I mean, I hadn't seen him in over 20 years. I didn't even know where to start. I was face to face with the fact that I still was chained to this single relationship that I thought was removed from my life forever. And here's the truth. I don't want to assume that just because we're in church, I'm surrounded by a bunch of people who weren't chained to relationships yourself. Because it happens, and you don't realize it. And here you are trying to present Jesus to the world, and somebody come in and has robbed you of that joy. And you're still chained to that relationship, and you don't even realize it. I'm going to help you the same way that I was helped and helped to find forgiveness. And for those of you that are taking notes or maybe you want to grab your cell phone and, and think about some of these, it's going to be heavy for you, but I want to walk through this with you because I love you and I want, I want you not to be robbed of your joy. Number one, feel every emotion. It's okay. God can handle your emotions. This is what happens in life. We, we don't even like our own emotions, much less somebody else's. And we bring these heavy emotions to other people to, to try to help us. And, and they're like, ah, I don't know, that's kind of messy. I can't, I can't deal with it too much. And we subconsciously learn that other people can't deal with our own emotions. And we can't deal with our emotions. So we tell other people that we can't deal with their emotions. And we run around this world feeling like our emotions are wrong and foreign. And we just didn't feel that way. Can I tell you, that's one of the most harmful things you can ever tell somebody. You shouldn't feel that way. Well, I do. I'm so grateful that my heavenly father, in moments when I need him, in moments when I'm broken and on my knees and crying and I can't figure this out and this hurts and this sucks and I'm broken and I need you, God, I'm so grateful that he doesn't look at me and says, well, you shouldn't just feel that way, Don. Who gave you those emotions? God did. And he gave them to you knowing that he's a safe place for you to process through them. I want you to name them. I want you to say the words. It's one of the most productive things you can do for those of you that are parenting young children. A lot of times toddlers have temper tantrums because they don't know how to handle the emotions that are going on in their life. They don't recognize that they're hurt or that they're angry or that they're upset or that they're mad or that they're jealous. 
And if you can't teach them to name those emotions when they're young, guess what happens? You end up sitting in my office, unable to name them as an adult. And there's a temper tantrum going on in your life because you just don't have the words to say, I want you to feel every emotion. That's how this starts. Are y'all with me? It was wrong. It hurt. You felt shame. You felt guilt. You were injured. You were surprised. And now you're angry. And now you're bitter. And now you're resentful. Say those words. I had to let all those emotions out before I could ever let forgiveness in. And here's the second thing I want to encourage you to do. Release God from all wrongdoing. Well, hold on, Pastor Don. Listen, if unforgiveness is a chain that we've wrapped ourselves in, accusing God of being the reason that we're hurt is the lock that keeps it in place. That's what the enemy wants. Listen to me. It was not God that hurt you. It was sin. It may have been your sin. It may have been their sin. It may have been the sin as a result of this fallen world. And with God's help, not only can you forgive, but you can be healed. As a parent, I regularly make choices that anger and hurt my children. Here's the difference. I don't enjoy it. But I will willingly sacrifice their short-term happiness in order to promote long-term health in their life because I'm a good daddy. And what makes us think that our Heavenly Father isn't there doing the same thing, looking down, saying, no, no, no. I don't enjoy that. But it will be for their betterment because I will be here with them, right there for them, every step of the way.